Backchat. 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 Politics and current affairs. Backpack. Backchat. Backchat. Your alternative to talk back. Yes, indeed, you are listening to Backchat here on FBI Radio, your freshest wrap of news and current affairs. I'm Swetha Das. And I'm Shami Sivasubramanian. Oh, I'm so glad to be back. Well, a lot's happened this week. Swedish teen activist Greta Thunberg has made a powerful call to action at the UN. An impeachment inquiry has been launched into the US President Donald Trump. And abortion is finally no longer a crime in New South Wales. But... As usual, we'll be bringing you the news that you might not have heard this week. First up, we have Eamon Waterford from the Committee for Sydney chatting to us about our city's congestion crisis. Just how serious is the issue and what should we be doing about it? After that, we'll be talking to Jenna Owen, a comedian and former child model who's made a doco for SBS Viceland's The Feed. It's all about exploitation of underaged female models and the lack of regulation in the industry. But as always, we want to hear from you. What is a dark secret you want to debunk about the modeling industry? Text us in on 0409945945 or tweet us at FBI. To show us all what a beep lying, beep backstabbing, beep treacherous, beep beep she is. Thanks, Colin. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. If you think Sydney's traffic is bad now, we're being told it could be so much worse very, very soon. The city's current population of 5.8 million is predicted to grow to just over 7 million by 2030, which means we could have more drivers on our roads and more commuters on our public transport. But it's not all doomsday. A few proposals have been bounced around, the most controversial being a congestion charge, making people pay more to drive into the CBD. But it's taxing people to use our roads the best solution. To help us understand the issue, we've got Eamon Waterford, the Deputy CEO and Director of Policy for Committee of Sydney. Welcome to the show, Eamon. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. So just how bad is Sydney's congestion problem? Should we be worried? Yeah, we should be a little bit worried. I mean, it is quite congested in Sydney, and certainly um, there are things we should be doing. I suppose what makes congestion really bad is if you don't give people alternatives. So it's sort of fine to have traffic on your roads. Um, it, it sort of suggests that the people want to be in your city, people want to get places, there's stuff going on. But if you don't provide people alternatives to get off the, out of the car, off the roads, onto trains, onto buses... Um, then we've got a real problem, and that's where Sydney really falls over. You know, a lot of Sydney siders live in parts of the city where public transport's not that great, um, and their only option is to go into that traffic and get stuck in it. We're being told that there will be an extra 1.3 million people in Sydney by 2013. So what's that going to mean for our daily commute? Well, it'll probably mean that commutes will be um, slower. But what it might also mean is rather than people uh, spending more time in traffic, they'll choose jobs closer to home. So there's this thing called the Marchetti Constant. And basically this guy, Marchetti, looked around the world and looked through history and said, how long do people take to get to work? And what he found is that it's been more or less the same the entirety of the era since the car was invented. So what that means is that if people can get a quicker trip, they move further away from their job or they take that better job that's a little bit further away. If traffic's really bad, as it will get in Sydney, it means that people don't take that really good job that's a little bit further away. They take something a bit closer to home because, you know, at a certain point, people just say, ah, I can't take it anymore. This is driving me up the wall. I don't get to see my family. I don't get to see my friends. Uh, Stuff it. The job's not worth it. 
So London has twice as many people as we do. So does New York. Even Singapore has the same number as us. So is population the only problem here? So no. Um, what the point to make about those cities is that they're much, much denser than Sydney. Sydney's issue isn't number of people. In fact, we could take lots more people. Our problem is that we've sprawled them in a really, really, really wide area. So to, you gave the example of London. We're one-tenth of the density of London, which means there's there's only one in 10 people in any square hectare compared to somewhere like London. And that density is really important because what it means is that you can actually get many, many more people in a particular area that supports a really good public transport system. The problem that Sydney has is that for a lot of the areas where we'd like to build train lines, there's just not enough people that would get on that train. And it means that um, it's really, really hard to support our system, our city, except by the private vehicle. So we've been hearing a lot about this concept of a 30-minute city where Sydney siders one day get to live just half an hour away from work. Uh, is density a factor in that? And do you think it's at all possible for Sydney to be that? Yeah. So look, a lot of a large chunk of Sydney already is a 30-minute city. I mean, if you live in the inner city, if you live in the inner west, in the eastern suburbs, you probably can get to a bunch of pretty good jobs within 30 minutes already. If you live in Western Sydney, not so much. If you live in the Northwest, not so much. If you live in the Southwest, forget about it, right? So, yes, it's totally an opportunity, but it's going to require a greater density of people. It's definitely going to require a lot more public transport. Um, the fact of the matter is Sydney is 60, 70 kilometres wide. You just physically can't drive that distance in a car within half an hour, you know, unless we were going to do, yeah, change the speed limits to 140 k's an hour. It's just not physically possible. A train can go a bit faster. It doesn't get stuck in traffic. So public transport is going to be the only way we'll resolve for this. You're listening to Backshot on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Swetha Das and Shami Sivasubramanian. We're speaking to Eamon Waterford from Committee for Sydney about Sydney's congestion crisis and the solutions being floated around to tackle the issue. And one of the, the suggestions we had at the top of the show was that um, they may, might start um, taxing people, a congestion tax yeah, to just... get into the city. And we got a text in. Someone said, the suggestion of a congestion charge is classic Sydney way to reinforce the idea that the city belongs to the wealthy. So some, that's a very, very good point, actually, when you think about it. Um, a recent population summit heard that Melbourne's way behind Sydney when it comes to tackling congestion by way of infrastructure. But how is Sydney really doing when it comes to this? Uh, so uh, my thought is we're actually currently doing really, really well. We're actually building, it doesn't matter feel like it, but we're actually building more public transport than almost any other city around the world, except for maybe London uh, and, and probably a couple of cities in China. Um, but our problem is that we didn't build anything for like 15 years. So we've got this huge backlog where we grew by a million people and we essentially did nothing to support that growth. And so all the stuff that we're building at the moment is catch-up for that huge growth that we just didn't support at the time. So, yeah, we're doing a lot and we just have to keep doing a lot for the next, you know, 40, 50, 60 years until we're all dead. we just got to keep on building those public, uh, public transport lines, a train line every five, eight years for the rest of our lives. So, Eamon, I just came back from a trip in Mumbai and I kid you not, it took me two hours to travel seven kilometers. It was literally the suburb or two over. It was wild. That's how bad the traffic is there. The population of the city is the population of Australia, 22 million-ish. Um, uh, yet it's it's a thriving economy. It's a thriving part of, of India. Uh, and going back to the texture about transport and public transport not being up to speed... Some transport experts have proposed a congestion tax 
for people driving the CBD. I think of a city like Mumbai and a congestion tax being implied there, like imposed there, sorry. And I don't know if it would work there. Would it work in Sydney? Is this the the solution we should do? I know it works in London. Yeah. Yeah. So the congestion taxes and, and road pricing more generally is a really interesting topic. So obviously we already have a bunch of road prices or congestion tax on roads in Sydney. You pay tolls when you go on any of those freeways that start with an M, the M2, the M7, the M5, the M4, they've all got tolls on them. And that price is actually a congestion measure. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's also a way of making a hell of a lot of money for people that own the roads, but it's also to reduce the number of people that want to use that road. If you put a price on something, it makes it less attractive. And that's a good thing if what you want to do is you want to keep the traffic free-flowing. Um, now, uh, your texter mentioned, obviously, that there's an equity issue with this, that if you put a price on a road, it makes it harder for poor people or low-income people to access that road, um, whereas it doesn't particularly bother rich people. I guess the point to make is that that's absolutely true. There is an equity problem with road pricing, but there's also an equity problem with the current situation. If you're poorer, you tend to live further away from where the good jobs are because the housing's cheaper there. And the tax that you currently pay, if you're living a long way away from the city is you pay it in time. You don't pay any money necessarily to use the roads, but you pay in time because you get stuck in traffic. So, you know, I do think there's an equity question around road pricing, but we can't pretend that what we've currently got is this like nirvana of equity. It's actually really inequitable for people who live a long way from the city because they're the ones getting stuck in traffic. Whereas if you're rich enough to live in Surrey Hills, to live in Redfern, um, where the housing's very expensive, but the jobs are plentiful, you never get stuck in traffic because you've got great public transport and you're like two kilometres from work. So, you know, we've been talking about the problem here, um, but I'm really curious to hear from you. What are some solutions? What are some other solutions here? You know, I learned very recently that 52% of older workers turn down jobs if they don't have an option to flexibly work from home. So I know that that is becoming a bigger concern for people. Um, But what are some other solutions that perhaps we can implement in Sydney, particularly for residents from Western Sydney? Yeah, so, I mean, there's this concept that the New South Wales government has around, they're calling it the three cities model. So the idea is that that, that there's the Sydney CBD, that's the centre of town at the moment, but that'll become just the eastern CBD, and there'll be two others. There'll be one at Parramatta, as Parramatta grows, and, you know, if you go to Parramatta these days, there's a hell of a lot of buildings coming out of the ground. They're really building a lot there. Um, So there will be more jobs in Parramatta. And then there'll be this third CBD around the new airport that they're building in Western Sydney. Now, at the moment, it's a paddock. There's nothing there. But they have this dream that in the next sort of decade, the airport will come out of the ground and around it, a new CBD full of lots of jobs that are closer to people if you live in Penrith or Liverpool, um, that'll provide an opportunity for those people to be able to get to good jobs within 30 minutes. It's a bold plan. Um, It hasn't uh, really been ever tried elsewhere in the world. Um, That doesn't mean it won't work. It just means that it's kind of cutting edge in terms of thinking about Sydney. So that's a big idea. I think that's a really interesting one. And I think that's sort of one worth keeping an eye on. Awesome. Well, thanks for talking to us this morning, Eamon. Yeah, no worries. Happy to do it. (laughs) (laughs) That was Eamon Waterford, Deputy CEO and Director of Policy for Committee of Sydney, talking to us about Sydney's congestion problem. Stay tuned because after this song, we have Jenna Owen from SBS Viceland's The Feed in to talk to us about her new documentary, Into the Ugly Side of This Country's Modelling Industry, and especially its treatment of female child models. As always, we want to hear from you. What is a dark secret you want to debunk about the modelling industry? Text us in on 0409 
0409-945-945 or tweet us at Backshot FBI. But for now, this is my Burning Man King Flume's new song, Rushing Back. We'll be back very soon. The, the Australian taxpayer even pays for the toilet paper she uses. Does she go down to the chemist to buy the tampons? Or is the Australian taxpayer paying for those as well? Backchat, your alternative to talk back. The modelling industry has long been criticised for encouraging harmful beauty standards, but a new doco on SBS Viceland's The Feed is looking to expose an issue that's less spoken about, how the industry exploits child models. Jenna Owen, a comedian and former child model, is here to talk to us about Breaking the Model, a doco she's produced about child exploitation in the Australian modelling industry. Hi, Jenna. Hi. Hi, guys. Thanks for being here. It's so nice to be here. Thank you for having me. So you used to be a child model. That's right. Yes. Tell me about that experience and why you left the industry. Okay. So I was a child model from 15 and I quit at 19 um, and I signed with my first major agency, which was Chadwick Model Management at 17. (laughs) Consider them dragged. (laughs) Um, So yeah, that was a quite a formative period of my life, obviously, 15 to 19. And it's only been now, I'm now 24, that I've started like processing kind of some of the things that happened to me and some of the um, behaviors that I kind of encountered and and how those behaviors, you know, ingrained in me, um, you know, a certain sense of self-worth and also affected, you know, my, my relationships now. So I think processing some of that stuff... Um, at 24 is has been really really hard over the last couple months and and making this documentary was for me but also to try to kind of as a honey trap to go this was my experience you know it wasn't necessarily the worst thing that can happen but hey like is there anyone else out there who's (laughs) had a similar or worse experience and just kind of see what the response has been and the response has been quite big so far turns out uh, a lot of people have a lot of the same experiences and a lot worse right Uh uh-huh so i guess first off just how many young people are in the industry I think the thing that nobody understands about modeling is it's like predominantly children. So, you know, in the documentary, we, we speak to a, a scout um, who's an international kind of scouts girls who go overseas, who make it big, if you will. And she tells us that the ideal age is 15 to start modeling. Um, that's, you know, the ideal age. They're scouted often a lot younger. Um, she says in the documentary that she's scouted at as young as 12. I obviously started when I was 15. And around that time, 15 was the ideal age to start as well. So that hasn't changed in the last couple of years. And don't get me wrong, this industry has changed a lot and in a lot of positive ways, mostly in regards to representation. Like when I was modeling, there was no plus size models in major agencies. There was certainly no uh, diversity in the major agencies. And that has changed. But my problem is that this youth, this idea of like sexualizing youth and, and taking this adolescence, you know, away from women has always been a problem and continues to be a problem and when you introduce you know more marginalized communities into that broken structure that's not progress <laughs> i will i literally talking about this before we mm. were like okay great so you have like diversity now but like mm. okay now you have a brown girl in mm-hmm. the ad but she's still a child mm-hmm. like okay great it's like correcting it but not really fully there yeah completely and it's because the people that are in charge of these structures like the scouts the agents like these aren't people of, of marginalized backgrounds or, or people of like diversity these are people that control these structures and you don't see those people um but they're the ones that are kind of pulling the strings and it's it's been i think another you know trigger for me to try and 
you know, get this message out here about youth in modeling and what that actually looks like, what the reality of that looks like because of all this rhetoric around, you know, how positive the modeling industry, you know, is right now. And I, I mean, I went to fashion week in Melbourne and their message was, this is the most diverse fashion week ever. Mm. And then, um, you know, I was there just like box popping, you know, asking young models their ages, you know, the median age was 16. Jeez. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, like, you've seen Fashion Weeks. Yeah. These are adult crowds. Like, yeah. this is an adult event. Um, I didn't get access to backstage. Heaven knows what that looks like. And this is also an incredibly gendered issue, right? Because male models start much later. Yeah? Yeah. So male models, you know, don't get scouted at 15. You've seen what a 15-year-old boy looks like. <laughs> yeah, actually, That's fair. I just, got, I just remembered. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, none of those. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, like, why does our society treat 15-year-old girls so differently to 15-year-old yeah. boys? We were talking about this just before the show, and it feels like it's unique mm-hmm. to modeling that the nature of the job itself mm. is quite exploitative. Like, a 15-year-old girl has to look sexy mm-hmm. in a way, like, for a model, in a way that maybe a 15-year-old actress on screen might occasionally have the opportunity to just be a 15-year-old. Totally. And do you know what it is? It's like this psychological detachment, right? I've been thinking a lot about this recently. When you are a child actor, you are playing your age. You're not dressing up as like a woman. When you are a model, your entire job is to look older than you are. Um, and to perform this idea of womanhood. So I think that what happens in modeling on top of like the fact that the entire structure is broken, that, you know, women are signing these contracts at 15 that are so exploitative and so illegal and so wrong, and they're not protected by the child safety laws in this country. But also on top of that, you know, you have, you have like young girls looking like women. And I Mm. think people, when they see young women, you know, who have this like makeup on and who are performing this womanhood, somehow we believe that it's okay to treat them like they are those women. But as we, as we said in the documentary, like, and as we unpacked in the documentary, um, you're still fundamentally a child and in any other situation you would be treated that way. So why in modeling are we allowing, you know, this to continue? So on that note, um, what safety nets are there to protect these children? Like what are the laws? So, look, this is the thing. This is, I think this is what people don't understand is that, you know, there is no safety net for models. So what happens is you're 15, let's say you're scouted, like many of the models in the documentary were, in a mall. You go into the agency. You might have your parent present with you, but you sign these contracts, you know, that sometimes make you kind of stay within your measurements of that age. So you're 15, you have your measurements taken, your measurements must remain the same. That's where, of course, like a lot of your body image issues come from as you go from 15 to 16 to 17 to 18 wow. to 19 and have to maintain the measurements of yourself at 15. Yeah, that's contractual. <laughs> you're locked in. You're locked in. So you're like this much waste and if, you have to be that for uh, the next four years of your life. If you fluctuate, that's impossible. Two, I think it was two centimeters when I was a model. If those those measurements change over two centimeters, you, you're no longer held by that contract. Stop. Yeah, which is, is a blessing in my opinion. But um that's one element of it. The other element in which we unpack in the documentary is this idea in modeling that you can go into debt. So that doesn't happen in any other creative industry. Okay. Like in modeling and acting, there's a lot of comparisons between them. People try and make comparisons all the time, but they are so fundamentally different in the way that they operate in the relationship between, you know, the creative and the agency in modeling. You can go into debt because when you are a model, you 
can be charged expenses. So people, you know, you understand your agency takes commission. Sure, modeling uh, agencies take 20 to 50% commission. So that's a huge commission as well. Yeah. Um, on top of that, modeling agencies charge you essentially for their labor as well. So if they have to print photos, they'll charge you for that. They'll charge you for the printing. If um, when you're starting out as a model, you have to build what's called a portfolio so they can charge you for the photos in the portfolio, how much those shoots cost. So when I was at Chadwick's, you know, I had to set up my portfolio because obviously I didn't have, you know, my hot model photos. So I had to get them. And then, you know, my account for a while looked like minus 1,200 for test shoot. Okay, so then I have to work to pay off that debt. And I'm also underage, you know, so I'm a child and I'm already accumulating a debt, um, which has been framed to me like a huge opportunity, obviously. Yeah. So New South Wales has child labor laws. Mm -hmm. There are rules around who can and can't work Mm -hmm. with children. How are these laws failing these children? So there's a loophole, right? Um, there's a loophole with the children's guardian because when you're a child in the state, you are. What is the children's guardian? Okay, so the children's guardian has to, you know, has to have a li- has a list of authorized employers in New South Wales. Okay, if you work with children, you have to be on this list. The reason that modelling doesn't appear on that list, there's no modelling agencies on authorized child employers. There's no list. working with children's check done at Chadwick Models. No, 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 no. It's a leading agency. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because but because they independently contract these girls, these girls aren't employers, so they don't have any benefits. It's not like they get super, you know, they're not, you know, protected in that way. Because Chadwick Models and every other major agency independently contracts their models from, you know, 15, they are not bound by the same child safety laws that um, other employers would have because they're employing children as opposed to independently contracting children. So essentially you are as unprotected as an uber driver that's essentially what a child what a model is okay so the structure is the same you're a contractor except the difference between uber driving and modeling is the fact that you don't have child uber drivers there's an age limit there and then also of course uber driving is not inherently in a sexualized environment you're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Swetha Das and Shami Sivasubramanian wow, killing rude. it. <laughs> We're speaking to Jenna Owen about her new doco, Breaking the Model, about child exploitation in the modeling industry. And you are asking people to text in what are some dark secrets about the modeling industry that you want to debunk. And um, Smitha from Castle Hill has texted in and has said... What's with agents discovering all these Victoria's Secret models in shopping malls? Like, Mm. do they just breed these models? It feels very creepy. Yeah, it's weird, right? But they scout them in malls because that's where kids hang out. (laughs) That's that's really it. Like, it's about the youth. And that's the thing. Like, that's what all models have in common. It doesn't matter their background. It doesn't matter if it's a progressive agency that's got, like, diverse books. It doesn't matter if it's a major agency. The thing that all female models have in common is youth and they, they started mm. young. Well, so I was watching, obviously in the mm, documentary, mm. Uh, you help a, well, you don't really help, but mm. you actually scout one mm-hmm. potential model mm-hmm. in a mall. It, it felt quite unnerving to watch. Um, <laughs> and I felt, I'm sure it was very unnerving for you to experience as well. Yep. But you spoke to her. Uh, she was beautiful. She mm. was tall um, for what you thought. And mm. then you found out she was 22 years old, mm. which was too old. And the agent who was with you shut it down so severely. Mm-hmm. Um, what was that like? 
awful. <laughs> yep. Awful. <laughs> yep. I mean, so bad. It's it's so upsetting, uh, you know, being like from my background, obviously, and having had that adolescence kind of, I feel, taken from me. Um, and then to go into a mall and, and meet a young girl and then, <laughs> I mean, we scouted another, another young girl successfully, so she was young enough. And the whole time she was like, you know, it wasn't in the documentary, but she was speaking to me about the fact that she wanted to be a video game designer. And, you know, I'm kind of playing this role as a scout. And I was like, well, you know, you'd be a great model. And, and it was it was such an awful, yeah. you know, bending of my own morals and understanding. Like, it was an important thing to show in the documentary how the scouting process works. But, like, the only thing I could think is, like... Please continue run being away. yeah run, <laughs> run away, away and please be a video game designer and that girl that was twenty two that was was too old like this is what the industry is like we can talk about you know how much positive changes happen but fundamentally like what type of industry says that a woman is useless to it at twenty two yeah wow well look first it was shopping malls and mm. now it's Instagram and mm. we're seeing a lot of young influencers self made mm. and they're owning the means of making their money. Mm. So they're not going through a traditional agency, but now they are making money off product placements mm. on the Instagram. Mm. So how has the dynamics shifted in the industry with social media? Mm. Well, freelance modeling is like a is a whole different ball game, right? So we didn't really cover that in the documentary just because I think that's its whole whole different kind another of, docker. Another docker because mm. of obviously the levels of exploitation in freelance modeling are huge. Yeah. You don't have oversight in in agency modeling, but you definitely don't have oversight when you're freelance modeling. So I think social media has made those agencies much more desperate. And I think that's why we're seeing, you know, levels of exploitation still with agencies and models, despite, you know, the Me Too movement, despite all this kind of, you know, chat that's happening in our society. I I think that the rise of social media and the fact that, you know, brands and, and corporations can pluck their models from Instagram at a much lower price than an agency model. Yeah. Um, they can get a much better package and a lot more content from them means that these agencies are becoming increasingly desperate, which means that you are going to still find them in malls, scouting 12-year-old girls, getting them young, getting them ready to go to Paris because they need to find young girls to continue to make money and they are not making money right now. <laughs> it is just getting worse mm. jenna owen thank you so much for coming on to the show not at all thank you for having me oh my god okay we're just gonna <laughs> <laughs> that Woo! was that was jenna owen from sbs Vicelands, the feed speaking to us about her new documentary about child exploitation in the modeling industry it's called breaking the model and it's available on sbs on demand you have to check it out definitely go there we'll Tweet out the link after we will. the show. But that's all we have for the show today. That's all we've got time for. That's thanks. all. Yeah. It's done. <laughs> it's <laughs> over. Bye, everyone. Big thanks to our producer, Natalie Sekolovska, and to Pip Leeson, who's tweeting away diligently. Thank you so much. And thanks again to our guests, Eamon Waterford and the lovely Jenna Owen. We'll catch you all next week. But before we do, here's my new ferret jam that is on repeat in my car. I will not stop. There's a bit of a language warning on this one. This is My Type by Saweetie. Catch you all next week. Bye. Take a